Welcome to I Wish They Knew, a show where leaders in business and education share big ideas that deserve more attention in about the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. I'm Joe Hirsch. Today's wish comes from Stephen Shapiro. Stephen helps leaders and their teams cultivate innovation by building the models and cultures that support breakthrough ideas and solutions. Stephen formerly led a 20,000 person innovation practice for Accenture, has worked with major brands like Nike, P&G, Microsoft, and 3M, and was inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame. Stephen's also the author of six books, most recently, Invisible Solutions, 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems. Stephen, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Joe. Looking forward to this. Yeah, me too, man. By the way, love the cover of the book, and I made sure that my cup today, <laughs> my coffee was on brand. There you go. Love it. Love it. So you have a lot of thoughts on innovation and how we can get better at that and solve these problems that are right in front of us. What do you wish more people knew about innovating? Well, I think the, the thing that which drives me crazy is everybody equates innovation with ideas and creativity and, uh, you know, just quantity. There, there seems to be this mindset that we need more, we need more ideas. No, we, we don't need more ideas. What we need is better solutions to important opportunities. And so if we can get that focus on what matters most, that's going to have the greatest impact. So you often hear organizations, especially when they're talking about innovation, about moving fast. But your model is a little different, and it brings to mind a different type of fast. What do you mean? So for me, I have a what I call my fast innovation model, and FAST is actually an acronym for Focus, Ask, Shift, Test, which are the four steps of my process. And unlike a lot of other agile, lean types of approaches, which is a lot of iterations around a lot of things that might not matter, the key with this model is to anchor yourself in what's most important. Where do we focus our energies so that we can get the greatest returns and then use the best means of finding solutions? So how do we start? I mean, what are we focusing on at the beginning? So the first step is focus. And one of my mantras is innovate where you differentiate. Uh, in most organizations, they ask people for their opinions, suggestions, and ideas, but they're not all valuable. What we need to do as an organization is figure out what is it that we do better than anyone else that creates the greatest amount of value that's going to stand the test of time. And let's put all of our energy into that. And make sure that when we are innovating, we are really focusing on the areas that are going to have a disproportionate return rather than just chasing everything that looks like an opportunity, but it might just be a bright, shiny object. Yeah. So really putting the time, the attention, and the funds on the things that are going to drive ROI. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So we're focusing on the right things. We, we are innovating where we're differentiating. And then it's about having the right process. So what happens next? So once we focus, which is the F, we go to the A, which is ask. And the ask step is, you know, to me, one of the critical ones, uh, because in organizations, we sort of have had this mantra, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And my thought is, no, I want better problems, more important problems, bigger opportunities. And if we can take those and reframe them the right way, we'll get better solutions. So the mantra for that step is don't think outside the box find a better box. The issue is not the expansiveness of your thinking. You're just looking in the wrong place. Some of the best solutions to your most important opportunities are hidden 
and you just don't know where to look. So how are we going to uncover those? Well, a lot of it has to do with assumptions. Uh, our past experiences give us a lot of assumptions and limit our peripheral vision. And so what we need to do is make sure that we are checking our assumptions to see whether or not they're correct, and then looking at the problems and opportunities through a different lens. And so I have a series of lenses, 25 lenses, that we use to help an organization take what they thought was the opportunity and shift it, look at it from a different angle to help give them a different perspective on it. But it really comes down to checking your assumptions and making sure you're moving in the right direction. So does that necessitate better questions on our part? Like, are we asking the wrong questions in the work that we're doing to try to have breakthrough ideas and practices and products? In many cases, yes, we, we do ask the wrong questions. And the, the issue is our questions are past-based. So, you know, you, you think about those financial services uh, commercials, they always say past success is no guarantee of future success. But in innovation, we actually know that it's actually much worse than that. Past success is a great predictor of future failure, because if we're only asking questions driven by our assumptions that are based on our past, well, we might have known our customers, we might have known our competition, we might have known our industry, but it doesn't, know we, doesn't mean we know them because it's constantly shifting. And so we have to change our questions in order to be able to meet today's realities, not the past. So what are some examples of questions that we ought to be asking to really get to these kinds of solutions? So there's a, a number of them. One of them is anytime you're solving a problem, ask yourself uh, or add to the end of the statement so that we can blank. And what I mean by that is a lot of times we're, we're developing solutions that are really just solutions masquerading as problems. So for example, we did some work in the education system. Well, why do we have an education system? We have an education system so that we can have children who are better productive members of society. It's a different question. It helps you look at it a broader perspective. And sometimes stepping back a little bit allows you to see things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. I love that broaden and build perspective. And you had a really great story. We were just talking about it offline about what happened when people apply that kind of thinking to the airport. Tell us about that. Sure. So I love the story. Uh, basically, you think about most airports, people complain about uh, the speed of the bags. They get to baggage claim and they're waiting too long. And so one of the airports spent a ton of money trying to speed up bags and they got it to the point where it was about eight to 10 minutes, which you'd think is pretty fast. Oh, I'd go for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's face it. Most of the time it's 20, 30 minutes, it feels like. But people were still complaining and they realized they could not speed up the bags. And then they had an epiphany, which was that yeah, the bags took eight to 10 minutes, but at this particular airport, it only took the passengers one to three minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So instead of speeding up the bags, they literally reconfigured the airport so that it would take the passengers eight to 10 minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. They get to the baggage carousel, their bags are waiting, people are happy. And Brilliant. there's a lot to the, we could really unpack with just this very simple example. That's so, so creative. I mean, instead of looking at it just from one side of the problem, which is, you know, people are waiting for bags. Let's not fix the, the, the bags. Let's fix the people. What a great way to think about that. Well, and that's the thing is there's, there's logical solutions and then there's psychological solutions. And this one had a psychological aspect to it because we experience wait time differently, differently than we do busy time. So if we're walking, if we're entertained, if we're, you know, keeping ourselves distracted, 
the time seems to go faster. So you could reframe the problem to be, how can we distract people? Or how can we make the wait time seem better or make the time go faster? So there's a lot of different ways to take one very logical thing about speeding up bags and look at it from the personal perspective. I love that. So we've got focus and we're asking better questions. So that brings us to the S. Yes, which is the shift. It's where people like to start. They like to have their ideas. They like to have their solutions. It's about solving problems. But one of the challenges that we have is the reason why it's difficult for us to find solutions, or at least good breakthrough solutions, is that our past experiences, again, influence the way we look at the problem. And so one of my beliefs is that expertise is the enemy of certain types of innovation. If we want to do breakthrough innovation, what we need to recognize is that in many cases, the solution isn't going to come from our area of expertise, but it might come from somewhere else. And so to solve problems, one of the very simple techniques I tell people to use is ask yourself, who else? Who else? Who else has solved a similar problem in a very different domain of expertise? I love that. So you're looking outside your immediate space to others who might be able to contribute their ideas and their own experiences, ones that you may not have. Exactly. I exactly. love that. So is it a matter of just reaching out to the right people, or is it also a question of putting the right people together on these teams? It's a combination of a few different things. So depending on the nature of the opportunity and problem you're trying to solve, one way is I'm a big believer in something called open innovation and crowdsourcing, which basically says, well, we don't know who might have the solution. So we post it onto a website, a well-framed problem to the website, and we ask and invite people to provide solutions. Therefore, we're automatically getting a larger range of people. Within a company, what we need to do is recognize that if we're working on a marketing problem and we have 100 marketing people trying to solve the problem, adding the 101st marketing person isn't going to make a difference. Who else could we bring from the organization that might have a perspective that's going to be different than the marketing people? So it is that composition of the team and then in some cases, we might even be able to just ask that who else question to look externally. So just a very quick example here, uh, cardiologist was looking to find a way of filtering out uh, clots from the bloodstream. And they didn't have a solution from the world of cardiology. He found a solution in having a conversation with somebody who is an oil pipeline engineer. And in oil pipelines, they get sludge basically the same thing as a clot. And they have a filter that they use to filter out and break up that sludge. They took the design of what's used in oil pipelines, brought it into the body and created a device that helps break up clots before they can cause damage in the body. I love that. End of the day, I mean, it's all pipes, right? So... All pipes. In fact, they, they met <laughs> at a life. group. They yeah. met at a group called Pumps and Pipes, which is that. a group of cardiologists and gas pipeline engineers who get together in Houston, Texas on a regular basis. And that's what they share is what do we know about the cardiovascular system? And how can that apply to the transmission of oil and gas and vice versa? Because they are all about a fluid through a tube. Exactly right. I guess a challenge with that though, is when you have this sort of creative abrasion where people are bumping up against each other from unusual sources, that ideas may end up getting stifled rather than started. So what are some things that we can do to make sure that we're not creating more friction instead of solutions? Well, I think the key with all of this sort of brings us in some respects to the last step, which is the test part, the 
focus ask shift test. And it's to recognize that the, the key with all of this, and this testing happens at multiple stages. So even though it's listed as the last step, it actually happens when you do a reframe. We need to validate and test our reframes. We need to validate and test our solutions. So we do that at each step. And if we can become masters at small scalable experiments, then we're able to move things along much faster, get real world feedback. Now there's a number of challenges associated with this, but the key is, and this is another thing which I wish people knew, failure is not the goal of innovation. We've over glorified failure. People seem to think that failure is a good thing. Failure is not a good thing. We do not want to fail. It might be inevitable, but we need to do everything we possibly can to mitigate the risk of failure. And so if we conduct good tests to validate our hypotheses and we do it the right way, if we disprove our hypothesis, if we show that what we believe to be true isn't true, that's not failure. That's a success. Failure only happens when we believe something to be true. It actually isn't true, and we continue to invest in it. So that really rounds out the four steps of the model. I love that last one because it's really not about celebrating failure. It's about prioritizing learning. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and that's such an important distinction. So what if you are a leader in an organization and you want to make sure that these invisible solutions are made visible to all, what are some of the things you can do outside this model to support the culture and the practice of innovation? I think the first thing is to make sure that everybody understands the power of the question, the power of the problem. So if we can get people, you know, you think about so many meetings, we're, we're talking about projects, but projects are already too far down. They're already solutions. Anytime you start to invest in anything, you want to start getting people programmed inside the organization, push the pause button and say, first of all, is this even worth investing in? Is it part of our differentiator? Is this something we should be taking our time doing? Or should we find a different way of developing a solution through a partnership or through buying a solution? So that's the first step. And then related to that is to make sure we're solving the right problem. Could we reframe it? Maybe there's a better way. So you want to program people to become really good at being able to identify what's the real opportunity that we're focusing on and is it valuable enough? And then again, you wanna give people the tools to be able to experiment. And it's not an expensive proposition. We could be talking about how could you test a hypothesis for $100? What kind of experiment would you have to create if it's only $100 and you know a couple of hours of time? So yeah. those are to me two really important things for organizations to learn. And what if you're working for a company that isn't looking in the right places and isn't doing the right things to support the conditions for real breakthrough solution finding? What can we do to help launch more innovation from our own positions within our organizations? So there's a few different things. Uh, one is become a master at the small scalable experiment, even if the money has to come out of your pocket. Uh, you know, do things with duct tape and paper clips and whatever it might be uh, to be able to build prototypes or protocepts, which is even before the prototype of what we're trying to create. So I think that's the first thing is really get good at that. But I think if you as an individual are able to help identify what are the most important opportunities and you can bring that to the leadership, that's going to be valued. I know a lot of people say they want the answers, but the problem is if you're solving the wrong problem or an unimportant problem, the answer doesn't matter. And the more you can create value for the organization 
by helping them identify what's going to be the best priority and the best opportunity, I've always found that people become eventually interested. It's not easy always, I will say. It's not something if it's not part of your daily job, but people do take notice eventually. The book is Invisible Solutions. The author is Stephen Shapiro. Stephen, thanks for sharing your time and your tips with us today. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show. It helps others find us. For more ideas on how to communicate with impact, visit my website, joehirsch.me. See you next time.